it's it's obscene to think back to those barbaric times when when humans were so so uncultured, I guess that they, that they weren't cultured <laughs> in a petri dish. Hello and welcome to Terrifying Robot Dog. I'm Jonathan Stark. And I'm Kelly Shaver. And we're here to talk about how technology is changing the way we interact with the world. This is TRD Book Club Week with Brave New World by Aldous Huxley. Please stay tuned. Terrifying Robot Dog is next. We did it. We finished it. We both did. We did. I finished it last night. I didn't get started on it until probably Monday, though, to be fair. Mm, yeah, I was. I, I finished it yesterday morning. It took longer than I thought to get through that. I think it was eight hours of audiobook I, I started listening to the audiobook and got through the first two chapters and then I just I gave up and started reading it and I enjoyed it much better after that yeah I did not enjoy the audiobook either I ended up playing it on on uh, one and a half speed and even two X speed which is something I have never done with an audiobook and I was interested to learn I, I finished it before I found out that you having switched to the text version enjoyed it better because I was like wow this this writing style is really out of date nothing against the narrator. The narrator spoke a little slower than I would have liked, but he did a fine job narrating it. It's just the writing style is, you know, it's, it's typical of British literature of that time. It's a, a little dry and a little dated at this point. And it mm. was, it was fine just reading it, but listening to, listening to someone reading it to me was, I, it was, my brain just did not want to focus and, and, and keep track of things. Yes. That's exactly what I found too. It was really hard to pay attention. Mm-hmm. And perhaps that's the uh, the internet making us stupid or something, but uh, <laughs> I didn't have any trouble paying attention to the expanse. That's for sure. Yeah, I think it's I think it's just just the writing style. Hmm. It was good. Like it I, was. I, I just I don't know. It was just very Tolkien ask and like very very descriptive. Really good. You know, I don't know. It was weird. I thought I thought I was not liking the writing style, but maybe it was just that something like that doesn't translate very well to a narrative to being read. Yeah, I I, I feel like that's it. And also, to be fair, too, the first couple of chapters were just like descriptive world building that would put George R. R. Martin to shame. <laughs> I get it. <laughs> and, I get it. Yeah, yeah. And it it took me until probably the fourth chapter to really start getting into it. Hmm. Yeah. Okay. But before we get into the themes, which I think is what we really want to get to, we've got a little bit of housekeeping. First, shout out to Jeremy Caudle. I think it would be pronounced. That's uh, how I would pronounce it. Yes. Who gave us a nice encouraging tweet on Twitter. Where else would you tweet? <laughs> and about the uh, forthcoming Third Order podcast. So yes, thank you. Thank you, Jeremy. And Third Order will be launching on November 20th. I suppose if, if you haven't yet listened to the previous episode of Terrifying Robot Dog, you have no idea what we're talking about. So Right. <laughs> you want to recap? Yeah, if you want to recap, go to episode 11 coming up next. Yes. Um, all right. So I don't know. Is that, I think that's all the housekeeping. I think so. I didn't have anything else. Cool. So let's jump into Brave New World and what we thought about it, how it translates to this time, our reaction to it from a, a modern era <laughs> <laughs> and whether or not we agree with the uh, uh, sentiment. I think, I think it's fair to say sentiment online that we're already in it or at least well on our way to the dystopian future that Huxley envisioned. All futures are dystopian. Uh, okay, so that's a, let's just start there. <laughs> um, so it, the book came out, I think it was released in 1932, 1931, uh, written in 1931, published in 32, set in London 
in the year 2540. Yes. So a little bit, uh, a little bit more than 500 years in the future from now, if my math right. And it was, I find this really interesting. So I think it's worth talking about. It was okay. supposedly a response, a parody. It started off as a parody of utopian novels by H.G. Wells and others of that period that were very, um, you know, had a sort of glossy vision sort of, of Star Trek vision of the future. Yeah. And yeah. I did not know that. I, I, well, the reason I even looked that up and we'll get to this is that I couldn't tell. There's like a clear, there's a clear conflict in the book and I couldn't mm -hmm. tell from reading it which side the author was actually on. No, I couldn't either. Yeah. So I was yeah, like, huh, I wonder if there's, you know, I wonder if it's well known which side of this he thought was right or if he didn't know and he was just bringing up the, look, this is where I see things going for better or worse and I don't even have an opinion. Right. Okay. So that, that's probably a segue into maybe the intro of the book. So for people who haven't read the book, do you think we should summarize the, the kind of the, the plot? Yeah, I suppose it wouldn't hurt. Yeah. So it basically, it, it basically starts off, you know, way in the future, mm -hmm. uh, 26th century, right? And the, the, the society as we're introduced to it is, is basically the logical conclusion of industrials, industrial kind of the industrial revolution and, and, and factory assembly lines applied to society. Mm -hmm. A little, even I'm going to, I'm going to make this reference, even though these works actually came later, it's a little Orwellian in that there's a big emphasis on uniformity and conformity. Yes. And, you know, it starts off in uh, some of the, some of the terms are, are pretty funny, like made me laugh out loud. You know, yeah, yeah, it's it's funny to hear people in in like the 30s trying to come up with sci-fi terms and and concepts set well in the future because you know, remember this is this is before we even you know this is this is pre-Sputnik days and and things like that. So, so yeah, and and so they start off you're you're sort of being take the reader is being taken on a tour of a factory where it's a fetus factory. It, yeah, a yeah human, produce people. Yeah, a human's factory. And before long, you re recognize that what's going on is they're creating giant batches of twins for the most part. Mm -hmm. Clones, know. I would say, is probably more, more accurate. Yeah, I, I was wondering about that too, because they're not clones of an adult. Is it still a clone if it's not an adult? So Yeah. Well, it wasn't. They take an egg and they fertilize it. Yeah, and then they clone it multiple times. I guess. I wasn't sure. I'm not sure what the definition of cloning is, but they, they caused it to bud. They caused it to twin, mm -hmm. like like twins its way into up to something like 96. And then after 96 people are, are created or clones are created from the same fertilized egg, then it starts to degrade if they try to go more. So then they some of those bud off into more and, and they have... They have different groups, and I, I forget the name they that he gave for the groups. It was I, I just, kind of German-sounding name. So, I mean, there would be groups, some, sometimes up to, I think, what was the most? They said, like, 1,500. Oh, right. Something yeah, like yeah. That. Yeah. So, and, you know, and they, they're basically twins. And, and so what they did was they would take, as the, as the you know, as they were carried along the assembly line on their yes. warm peritoneum, <laughs> they would be taken into the, you know, there's different rooms that they go through mm -hmm. where the, where things are done to the, I don't know, I guess it's an embryo at that point or whatever yeah. point it's at. You know, they would say, they would say how far along the assembly line it was based on the number of weeks or days that it had been going. And as it passed through certain places, they would precondition the, the, whatever you call them, the embryos into 
developing in certain ways. Yeah, they would they would develop them into one of five classes, alpha through epsilon. So alphas, betas, gammas, deltas, and epsilons. Yeah, and these are the different social castes. Right, where alphas are sort of the top of the heap in terms of, uh, I don't know, social standing and intellectualism and physical appearance and all of, they're sort of the ideals and then epsilons are i think they refer to them repeatedly as semi-morons that mm -hmm. were barely above animal intelligence but they were and so here's where i started to be like unsure i think as early as as this chapter i was unsure as to where the authors stood on this because what they what they would do is they were like, okay, this, this batch is going to be working on, on, um, like an oil refinery in the middle of the ocean, let's say. Mm -hmm. And it's going to be, there's going to be conditions that are extremely uncomfortable. They're going to be underwater a lot. It's going to be freezing cold all the time. They're going to be upside down a lot. Um, so they do things to the embryo that supposedly would predispose them to not really be bothered by that stuff. And in fact, feel, feel sort of malaise or discomfort if they weren't experiencing those kinds of conditions. Right. And I was like, okay, everything about me is recoiling from this notion. But at the same time, preconditioning is something that you do as a parent. <laughs> I guess it kind of is, isn't it? Yeah. So like, why wait, you know? It, <laughs> and I realize we're talking about like, you know, you can't, the the logical conclusion fallacy, you can't just be like, oh, well, if parents precondition their kids, then why shouldn't the state create clones and precondition them, <laughs> it, hobble their intellect and precondition them to enjoy repairing a, uh, you know, like welding the 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 base of an oil refinery? <laughs> yeah. I th Well, I think it's it's done to the point where it kind of removes free will is is the part where it gets gets weird right and oh, okay yeah but so let's just keep describing it so so they go you know they go along eventually they're decanted that's what being born is called mm -hmm. and it's hilariously at points in the book they have sort of folk songs about you know my little bottle <laughs> yeah or whatever but the, the so what what you end up with or what they end up with is a society that has five distinct caste systems that have no parents whatsoever. I mean, there's no concept of a parent. In fact, the word mother is considered pornographic to even say. Yeah, it's it's obscene to think back to those barbaric times when mm -hmm. when humans were so so uncultured, I guess, that they, that they weren't cultured <laughs> right, <laughs> in a petri right, dish. Right, right. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, I was I was entirely unintentional pun, but it's been that kind of day. So okay, so so then as you get to as you get more exposed to the daily lives of these people, you start to recognize that they have what you what the average person I think listening to the show would consider an extremely shallow uh, existence. Very immature and focused on instant gratification and there's this idea that oh you can never be alone you must always have social interaction and the quality and, and depth of that social interaction is, is like you said very shallow hmm. so things like if if someone is has dated the same person first of all everybody's super promiscuous mm -hmm. and there's no concept of getting married that's absurd you wouldn't even there's no concept of a monogamous relationship or right. for that matter for that matter i'm not even entirely sure if there's there is the concept of romantic relationships in the book but again it's so very shallow and not meaningful yeah 
is frowned upon. It's like, you've, yeah. you've gone out with the same guy three times in a row. Oh, you know, it's like the reverse of the, you know, you slut type of thing. It's, it's the mm-hmm. reverse. It's like, how could you, how could you keep going out with the same person? Why would you even want yeah. to do that? It's kind of like, uh, it's, you know, frowned upon. And the, the, um, which is funny. I thought it was kind of, kind of funny for a society that's so focused on not reproducing naturally that they're like, yeah, go out with everyone. Yeah. I mean, well, there were, there were big, I think a third of the population were referred to as free Martins. They were just purposely sterilized. I'm not sure why they mm-hmm. didn't purposely sterilize everyone. I guess they needed yeah, the yeah. eggs. Uh, but there were, you know, there were big sections of the book devoted to um, going through sort of uh, this training phase from, you know, like you're, when you start to become reproductive, you know, like say mm-hmm. whatever, 11 or 12 through to 18, where you have to go through these drills where it's drilled into you that, you know, how to not get pregnant, basically. It, yeah. uh, like getting pregnant, it's funny because like getting pregnant out of wedlock is, I suppose, a thing in our real world. But in this book, it's more, it's just like way worse than that. It's like, you know, that's just not done. It's obscene. Right. And there's absolutely no way you would keep the baby. It's like, you just, it's, right. it's like, no. Right. You know, the most disgusting thing that could happen. In fact, there's a person in the book who, who essentially ostracizes herself from civilization because she accidentally gets pregnant and has the baby because she's off somewhere where she can't do what she wanted to do, which is not have that happen. Right. So pretty, it's, they've, they've flipped. It's almost like you take a, it's almost like you took a, a one for one list of really common, deeply held social mores for, and, it. and just flipped it on exactly on the head. Yeah. And said like, oh, like these things that we all in 30s London take for granted are now sins. And the things that we all think are sins are now virtues. Yeah, which had to had to be quite a quite a a controversial thing and quite a shocker, especially for, like you said, 1930s. (laughs) You can you can read it now and your your brain can kind of go there probably easier than it could if you read it, Mm -hmm. you know, 80 years ago yeah the book was banned all over the place it was banned in in states you know more conservative states in the u.s it was banned in ireland Uh, it's kind of i mean it's super racy if you think about it like that it is yeah so come to find out that this there's this one character uh bernard right um yes and when they first introduced him and he started talking about unhappy with things and i thought i thought the plot of the book at that point was going to be okay contemplative introvert born into this world wants different life but Mm -hmm. it which he kind of does, but that wasn't that wasn't where the where the plot went. So. Right? Yeah, I was like, oh, this guy's going to be a hero, and you know, he's sort mm-hmm. of the the uh, protagonist. It seemed like at first, but it turns out he's actually kind of a jerk. Yeah. And 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 again, this is where I was like, maybe Huxley is is saying that it's not as simple as black and white. Like this, like like this isn't just a parody, or like this is the way things should be. Because you're introduced to this person who looks like it's going to be the protagonist, and is someone who's not that likable, really. Just, yeah, and he kind he kind of ends up being kind of two faced later on. Yeah, he's super. It's like it's like Wormtail. He's like Wormtail mm, yeah. from he's Harry very Potter. Serving, yeah. Yeah, just a, he's just like not loyal to his friends. He's he's super egocentric. He's a total egomaniac. Um, always depressed and, and just like yeah. Uh. So you're like, oh, okay. Well, all right, here's this society where let's just say it could exist. Let's just say that you know like disease wouldn't be rampant because i kept thinking like man if you had that many twins diseases would just route the population in two seconds Mm. but okay it's 500 years in the future they figured that out you've got all these people who are super happy i mean like blissed out super happy they feel like they're on drugs 90 percent of the time well and well they talked about that it's not 90 percent of the time it's they it's they they worked 
um, a full day and they, they talked about how they experimented going down to, you know, shorter oh, days yeah, and allowing, right, right. allowing more leisure. But with the more leisure time, they just got agitated and they, then they would take more drugs. So they're like, um, what was the quote? There's a, there's a, a good, uh, no, le- no leisure from pleasure was one of the, <laughs> so they, you know, they want to feel like they're contributing to, to society as shallow as that might be, or as simple as their contribution might be. Mm-hmm. And as, as little choice in the decision as they had, although they have no idea that they had no choice in the situation. Right. But they're conditioned to want to be productive members of society and, and do those things. Yes. And, and yeah, you're right. It's not on drugs 90% of the time, but it is very common and pretty much a given that everyone there's, there's some drug use going on and you kind of get a sense that it's a control mechanism. Yes. So, I mean, I, I got the sense so for people unless unless it was a fringe case where there's some situation i got the sense it was kind of like coffee you know like yeah. in terms of frequency you need, you know you have a little in the morning maybe you have a little in the afternoon mm-hmm. you know something like that yeah but it, it did seem like an addiction yes it, you, you immediately think like well okay what about antidepressants is that an addiction mm-hmm. oh that's true it <laughs> right yeah <laughs> yeah that's a good point is it is it a, an addiction or yeah i don't know or you're just is it just balance balance you out, man? And and then you're like, have they been preconditioned to want it? <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah, and and eventually you stop questioning it and just go, okay, that's a thing. <laughs> right. So so this guy Bernard Marx, I think was his last name. He's sort of this introverted guy. He, uh, he you know he's smaller than other alphas. He's an alpha, but he's smaller, and he always felt like left out, and he's got a wicked infer- inferiority complex, and he is a psychiatrist or a psychologist and and is aware of the fact that as the children are very young growing up like babies they mm-hmm. are exposed to something called hypnopedia in the book where you know nightly repeatedly these sort of soothing mantras will be played under their pillow like we can't do without anyone we can't do without anyone we can't do yeah. without anyone and then over all time work for each other yeah. yes yes we all work for each other no leisure from pleasure um, everyone is important yes the more stitches the less riches you know throw out your old clothes so there's this they they're conditioned in this way to accept all of the things that they're going to encounter as an adult including their position in society so mm-hmm. if you're if you're an epsilon which is like the bottom of the barrel so to speak you're happy because you don't have to do all the work that alphas and betas have to do and and the kind of work that it, that you know, whatever gammas and deltas have to do is not appealing to you. You don't like the way they dress. And this has all been implanted in your mind. Yeah. But but it makes everybody happy. Like they're like, oh, sweet. I'm an epsilon. Sweet. I'm, you know, whatever. I'm a Slytherin, <laughs> you know. So for whatever reason, I'm mean, not for whatever reason, because they've been conditioned, um, they're super cool with it. And, and the only reason uh, Bernard starts to freak out is because he knows about the uh, conditioning and, and he, the, the hypnopedia. He's so hyper aware of it that every time somebody says anything, he he just sort of rolls his eyes and repeats, you know, 200 times per night from ages 11 to 17, you know. And, yeah, yeah. But nobody cares. Like the knowledge that he's pr- sort of putting in front of their feet, they're like, whatever, I'm I'm happy. Like, what's your problem? <laughs> you know like, and, yeah so what it works i'm happy i don't care yeah so okay so man i don't feel like we need to tell the entire I, i'm tempted to like keep telling the story but i don't know if that's yeah, even I'm, necessary I'm, I'm i'm tempted to but maybe we should get more into how this kind of relates to now yeah okay so the so the thing that really relates to now 
I, I guess one thing to point out is eventually they go outside of civilization. They find this guy named John, who's a savage who grew up like we would consider a normal person. Mm-hmm. And he gets brought back. And then there's this big, you know, like uh, sort of huge conflict of, of him sort of almost on behalf of the reader. Like questioning all the stuff. Yeah, yeah. like how can you possibly be cool with Enjoy this? Enjoy it, yeah. And everyone's like, how can you not? And they kind of they kind of fight it out. You know, they discuss it. And so a mm-hmm. lot of this stuff, the, the thinking on both sides starts to become revealed, uh, which, you know, more toward the end of the book. So the thing that I think is, when it comes to like modern society, I've already brought up like two things that occurred to me as I was going, as I was reading the book. Like a lot of this stuff is kind of happening. And I think I wasn't as repulsed by the book as I would have been in my teens. Like in my, in my teens, I would have out of hand. I don't even know if I could have kept reading. I would have been so outraged. But as an adult, especially when with kids, I'm like, I'm not saying, obviously, I'm not saying that I would advocate anything that extreme. But you do see a lot of parallels that I think people I know are pretty cool with. Yeah, it's it's weird. I, I think it's oddly, I think as an adult, it's it's more relatable than it would be if I'd read this in my teens because you can, like you said, you can draw parallels. Mm. The thing that really freaked me out, the, thing, the, the mm-hmm. thing that I found most challenging was that there was sort of an argument between the world world leader and the savage. And they went back and forth basically saying that, agreeing, they went back and yeah. forth agreeing violently. You yes. know, not physically, but they were arguing, but they were in agreement. You know, the savage would say, but this is the outcome of what you've done. And he's like, yeah, exactly. How can you not see that that's bad? I mean, can, how can you not see that it's good? And, and so what he was kind of boiled down to was that in a society like that, stability was valued over everything. You know, the quote was, because there was a war right before, supposedly there was a war right before this. Yeah, a nine-year war. And the 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 world leader of the civilization says, says, what's the point of truth or beauty or knowledge when the anthrax bombs are popping all around you? Mm-hmm. And he kind of points out that at a very base survival level, truth and beauty and knowledge are really not the most important thing. At that base level, that's not what you're necessarily worried about. So like if your life is threatened, I, I'm not going to say there are none, but choosing between death and truth, you know, like how many yeah, or, people are going to... Or death and art. Right. Would you rather die right now or never have art in your life again? Yeah. Cake or death? Yeah, cake or death. This, right. Yeah, totally. So it, it, they go a little bit deeper into it. And this is this is the challenging thing I thought. It was like, if you have a world, you can't have heroism unless you're in a crappy situation. Right. You you can't have heroes without evil. You can't have... You can't have courage without fear. Yeah. And it's like, well, if you get rid of fear, you also, you're going to get rid of courage too. So you decide. You either yeah. get, get rid of war... Or get rid of it, it's kind of like get rid of war or get rid of individualism. Yeah, you're getting rid of the extremes. Yeah, you're you you're you, in order to create stability, they suck all the passion out of life, basically. Mm-hmm. And you know, do I do I think we'll ever go that far? No, I really don't. No. But do I think that it's a sliding scale? I sure do. <laughs> because I know people, you know, I, even my younger self would do things that were much more passionate and stupid. You know, mm-hmm. if the older self looking back on the younger self, I used to do, I used to, I, you know, I thought it was Romeo for crying out loud half the time, <laughs> you know, not Romeo like, hey, hey, more like Romeo and Juliet Romeo. Right. Like, oh, this is the end of the world because of some minor slight that I, I can't even, literally can't even remember now, you know, that I'd be like, oh, this is the end. I can, I can't believe she didn't whatever call me yeah. back or she said something, looked at me weird in class or. Yeah, we've all been there. 
Yeah, and it seemed like a super big deal, and mm-hmm. or or somebody steps on your foot in the hall, and you haul off and punch them. Even if you've never done that, I know you know someone who has. Yeah, you know you've been there when that's happened, and that's passion. Like that is that is ego. That is, and I don't I don't think it's good. I don't think it's good. But do it. Does that mean you need to completely remove passion from life? No, but you can see like, wow, that is a tough balance. That's a that's a tough balance. I don't know. Maybe that's just maybe that's just me, but no, no, I don't think it does feel like a bummer to be like, oh wow, we'd never have any heroes again. But then it's like, well, what's what do we get for that? Oh, no war. Oh, pretty cool. Oh, we don't need heroes anymore, so mm. that means there must not be anything really bad going on. So okay, <laughs> yeah. So from from a sort of theoretical, purely philosophical standpoint, that I found that interesting, but it's pretty easy in practice to be like, well, he glossed over giant things that that I, I don't think it would. It's tough to imagine a science even in the next 500 years that would that would bring any of this to bear. And even inside the book, there were sort of loopholes where mm-hmm. certain certain individuals were exiled to an yes. island where all the cool people hung out. <laughs> <laughs> right. People are people are so afraid of being exiled to these islands. And, it's, and, and they're like, no, you know, actually, I don't know why he's so upset about that, because we're sending him there because he doesn't fit in here. And, and that's where all the cool people that he's going to get along with are. Right. Yeah. So he should be happy about it. <laughs> right. So, okay. So where, as you were reading it, what things, if any, did you notice sort of, you feel like were like parallels in the current tech or society that kind of map to what, what happened in the book? I, I mean, I feel like there's things going on that sort of map to the way things were in the book, but you know, for completely different reasons, but just sort of the uh, sort of a growing shallowness to the personal interactions or to our social interactions. Um, I don't think that tech necessarily makes that easy. I think technology is a great tool for fostering communication and building better and deeper communication. But at the same time, I think it also puts a lot of stuff out there that's just noise. That's like, oh, this this little meaningless game that distracts you for 15 minutes while you're on the subway instead of maybe striking up a conversation with someone or or that kind of thing. Just sort of the, the, the instant gratification and shallowness of, of that sort of social interaction i thought is it was something that really stood out to me mm, yes i agree i think that the the you know, the drug in the book is called soma and everybody's always got it on them and when they don't they're flipping yeah. out and it it's basically a, an anti-anxiety possibly a hallucinogenic uh in large doses yeah. but it it it's not a drug but i do feel like the phone kind of enables a similar thing where you mm-hmm. you get you're getting this dopamine hit you can just kind of check out from the rest of the world. Yeah, you just minutes. like disappear. It, it's kind of counter to the book because in the book, they're constantly pushing people to have in-person, like you're never alone. Like you're constantly having in-person interactions. Right. But the quality of those is, is so... Very bad. Shallow. Super it, shallow. You can you can definitely draw the correlation. Yes. And it, right. So even though the, the interactions that we're having on the phones are not in person because how could he possibly have imagined that but you know like imagining social media in the 30s is pretty hard but if but you could sort of see it the same way where you're having these very shallow like oh here's a picture of my lunch here's a picture of me my abs you know yeah it's like oh i'm gonna i'm gonna like this tweet i'm gonna click this button to put this little heart next to your tweet instead of instead of making a comment about it that that expresses a a thought a unique thought or opinion i'm just gonna click this button that says oh yeah i like that and and go on to the next thing yep 
and I'm just going to share this or I'm just going to like, I'm going to keep our Snapchat streak going by like making a funny face and sending to you. And so we don't miss a day, but we haven't actually talked. Right. I mean, one of the most popular social media platforms out there intentionally limits you to commentary of 140 characters or less. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Right. It's, it's, it's a lot of it is just set up for frictionless engagement so they can sort of have their numbers up and get and keep keep your mm-hmm. keep you engaged, keep your attention on the platform, but not actually deepen your relationship with anybody. So like I've got really good friends who I interact with on social media, but I'm not really good friends with them because of social media. I was either really good friends with them first or you know, like you and I have met once in person, but we, you know, we didn't get close because of Twitter or something or right. Slack, you know, you, it's, it's like, it's like, um, we worked together and we talked a lot. Yeah. And it's not that you couldn't get close with someone over Slack, but, but you know, it's like a Tinder work. Like Tinder is a great example of something from the book. Like that mm. totally would have existed if, if they had the concept of the technology. Cause like, right. It was just like a hookup thing, you know? And they just hooked up constantly. The book, it was constantly, you're constantly hooking up with somebody. So Tinder is, I think, a great example of, of that kind of thing of a, it, it seems like a clear parallel to Brave New World. Yeah. Uh, the shallowness of social media interactions in general, not that they're necessarily shallow or they indicate that your friends on social media are shallow, but it does lend itself to that kind of a thing. Yeah. The constant, the constant availability to an overwhelming amount of entertainment reminds me of something that he would have put in the book if he had imagined it. Yeah, yeah, I, I think so. Because they talk about... The feelies. The feelies, yeah. <laughs> yeah, going going to the feelies. Yeah, instead of the movies. Mm-hmm. And yeah, I just have this sensory overload. It kind of, it's funny because when they were, they described at length one of the, the sort of feelies where they were um, talking, he'd talk in, in ex- extensive descriptive detail about this the saxophones and how the you know uh, what was this it was like a smell uh scent organ scent organ yeah i think that's what it was called and they would say oh there's a crescendo of patchouli followed off by a hint of vomit yeah just enough to create a dissonance so they could finally come back to a nice field of lilies you know like describing describing a series of scents the way you would think normally think about like a musical piece right a musical piece yeah and it, re- you know what it reminded me of? 100% hmm. a ride. It was 100% description of a ride at Disney. Oh, was it? You think? Oh, yeah. You think? Uh, yeah, I'm, I mean, I'm not much for theme park rides, so I'll take your word on that one. It's the, you know, obviously the details are different, but it's the exact kind of experience that you get when you go on a really immersive ride at Disney. The or, sort of sensory overload. Or yeah. what about what about a really great VR experience? I have never experienced one of those, but I would imagine that that is, is similar. The thing about Disney is that that really re- made me think of it is that they do all the sort of gimmicks where they'll like spritz water in your face as you go past yeah. a waterfall and it touches all the senses like there's smells and, and actual feelings and mm-hmm. you know on your skin type feelings and you know they're jostling the car around when you're going down the cliff and the dragon blows fire at you and they heat up the space you it really mm-hmm. it's really it really gets your heart going. Yeah, I think they're starting to add VR to some of their rides. You could replace probably $500 million worth of equipment on the Harry Potter ride with like a bunch of headsets. A, bun- a bunch of headsets, yeah. And then still keep the things that like spray you with water and heat up the air around you and have it timed to the VR that's playing. That would yeah. be fine. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that would, it would, you, you'd be panicking. Like you'd almost need to have a medical release before you did it. <laughs> 
So it, it, a lot of it reminded me of Disney, which I think a lot of people point at, point to Disney as like, um, way too escapist, uh, mm-hmm. unreality type of thing, which I think really is, is the kind of thing that Huxley would have described for sure. So what else, what else is a parallel? Um, well, the conditioning stuff. So, so a, a, it comes up throughout the book because of Bernard always bringing it up about how the kids are conditioned to be to feel a, a certain way about certain things and it's a big debate in the book you know he'll say somebody will say the savage for example will be like well you only believe that because you've been conditioned to and and the the counterpoint is well every everyone's conditioned to do you can't not be conditioned so why not pick something good right you you only feel differently because you've been conditioned to feel differently <laughs> right like your, you your conditioning is is growing up in this different environment. Yeah. So, you know, why not? And, and, well, I don't, we don't even go into it, but like the, the savage, like a, a sort of person that you, you know, religious zealot, let's say, that you would come mm-hmm. across in this day and age. Yeah. Religion became a bigger theme toward the end of the book. Yeah. And he's sort of portrayed at the polar opposite other end of the spectrum of like, you know, self-flagellation and, and mm-hmm. depression and just complete cognitive dissonance between reality and what he wants and what he's going to get and, and, and really scary ways for that he has to go through to even attempt to, to purify himself and, you know, through pain. It's like, okay, that's not better. Yeah, like he went from he went from his fairly fairly normal life on this reservation sort of environment where he grew up a you know a pretty not great but you know normal a normal life mm. for, out, outside of this the this conditioning and homogeny and, and all of that stuff and then he went into that world and was like no I, I don't like this extreme and went all the way like back past where he was to the other extreme of of self self denial and. Mm-hmm. And and self-flagellation and punishment and, and purification and all that stuff. Right, and it's like okay, that's that's not good. And of course, if you look at any extremes, you're gonna be like, that's too extreme. Whether it's on mm-hmm. one end or the other, so naturally it's gonna be somewhere in the middle. But it it did get really hard at the end to be like, all right, uh, I I'm not sure which. I, I know I'm not supposed to like either one of these extremes, but I, mm-hmm. I can't really say that one's better than the other. They're both really bad. Yeah. You know, it's like, I feel, I felt like at the end of the book, I should kind of be like, oh, well, you know, the individualism and the, the sort of passion and love and, and, you know, whether it's romantic love or, or parent child and all of that. So I would never want to give that up. But then you're like, oh yeah, but it's, I guess what it comes with a whole bunch of really horrible stuff. Mm-hmm. So you're like, all right. And if it you just look- kind of, it just kind of leaves you like missing like what he was before they ever brought him there in the first place, because what he became was was no better. It was just the opposite. He was certainly pushed to his extremes by exposure to a complete mm-hmm. repudiation of everything he believed. So, you know, it was like so horrifying and to be in the minority. And he was, mm-hmm. I don't know if you remember, in the in the village, he was an outcast even in the village. And he was, because, yeah, even in the village, he was an outcast. Right, because he was a child of someone from civilization, not one of the sort of normal bloodline or whatever you want to call it, like not one of the mm-hmm. real tribe. Right. But, oh, so we were talking about conditioning and how, like, everybody's, you're conditioned on purpose or by accident, but it happens because you're exposed to stuff. So, you know, if you, I suppose this gets into the nature-nurture debate, but, uh, and I, I don't think it's one or the other. As a parent, I can see that 
like, like, uh, maybe this is confirmation bias, but both of my kids had a distinct personality before they were even born that like the way that they were while Erica was pregnant is completely reflected in the way they are now. <laughs> and, it, it, and again, it's probably, I don't know, it could be confirmation bias. It could be that we're reinforcing our belief that they were going to be a particular way, but man, it is, mm-hmm. you know, same parents and two polar opposite kids in certain regards. And yeah. we condition them. Like we say, that's wrong. They do something, we say that's wrong. Or we, or we praise them when they do something good. And we say, we'll use the same things over and over. It's like, we don't, you know, that's not, for, look, Cooper, we taught him how to, like, not to mess around with electrical outlets. We're like, that's not for Cooper. That's not for Cooper. That's not for Cooper. Mm-hmm. Like after three or four times, he's like, no, that's not for me. Yeah. Simple. Yeah. You, you, you have to condition them or they kill themselves when they're two. <laughs> yeah. By accident. Yeah. So, okay. So we do condition our kids. Uh, there are things like, uh, what's it called? Baby genius or something where you, you, you know, people will play oh, the symphony, baby Einstein, baby stuff. Einstein yeah. 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 Play that stuff in there. We didn't do any of that stuff. No, but, we didn't either. But I, I just think parents that do that, are, I don't know. It seems a little, like, it seems a little snake oil to me, but maybe it works. I don't know. But I don't really care. Like, I don't care if someone does that. It's yeah, not like. They're, uh, they're certainly not doing it with the intent to harm their child. Yeah. And it's, it's not like. Um, it doesn't seem harmful, but yet the only difference between that and what they do in the book really is that there's no parents in the book. So it's the state. So it feels creepier. Yeah. And then they do the sort of, the sort of genetic conditioning before they even born to place them in their casts and to make mm. them happy with that. So, so it's, it's like there's, there's never an opportunity to be something different. Yes. Yes. No. Is there a, is there a parallel to that in this modern era with, from a technology standpoint? I mean, certainly you're born into a family and a a locale, and certainly you're going to be affected by the friends you have, the people that you meet there, what you're surrounded by. Like, I don't think anybody would argue that. Like, you're affected by your surroundings. Uh, yeah, you are. But th- at the same time, it, it doesn't mean that you're going to forever be a prisoner to them. Sure. Yeah. And there's, there's I mean, it's a common... It's like a trope in American society that kind of rags to riches story like inner mm-hmm. city kid makes good, you know, now he's Elon Musk or whatever. And right. it's, it's, it does, that is, um, that would be impossible. That would have been impossible in this book pretty much. They actually did have a, mm-hmm. you know, you could just sort of opt out and they'd be like, okay, go live in the Falklands, go live, go to Iceland. You could opt out, but you couldn't, you couldn't even change careers yeah. within your own cast. Right. And, but the, the, the antagonist would say, well, you will never, why would you want to? You never want mm-hmm. to. Like, it, and it would go into this whole thing of like how hard that would be and how much struggle there would be. And you'd basically be, you'd basically be saying, look, I have a right to be unhappy. I have a right yeah. to suffer and die. I have a right to, to become incontinent and feeble. And yeah, you want a right to that? Fine. Go, go have it. Go, go live on an island. Yeah. But, the, but their argument of, well, okay, you can't do those things, but, but why would you want to? Yep. So, so that I think for me, that is probably a pretty big thing. Like if you remove really, really try to remove, let's say try to move because, because, you know, three characters in the book did break out of that. Mm-hmm. Uh, maybe four, I guess, depending on how you count them. Yeah. Depending on how you count them four. but they were all alphas mm-hmm. or I guess Linda was a beta or something. But anyway, the, 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 um, it wasn't that it was impossible completely, but if you were, you know, if you're, if you had alcohol mixed in with your 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 fetus on day twenty five or whatever when you were a baby and you were purposely turned into a just subhuman basically so that you would not mind working in the sewers, yeah, you're pretty much 
that's pretty much it. <laughs> you have been handicapped on purpose mm -hmm. and are never going to, and that's never going to change. So, so but from, okay, so to bring it back, whether or not it's right or wrong, is there some kind of pattern that we see in technology that, that creates that kind of uh, complete removal of you can, the hope that it stems from a, a comment like you can be whatever you want to be or like, you know, where, where there's a will, there's a way. I don't, I feel like, I feel like it's the opposite, but maybe I'm super biased. Maybe we're not removing the hope, but maybe we're for in, in some instances making the gap wider. I think in a lot of ways we're closing it in other areas too, where it's, where it's easier to go from the, the sort of, the sort of rags to riches story. I mean, I, you know, I grew up in a small town in rural Kentucky with not a lot of money and, and I think I've done okay for myself. And um, I don't know, I just, I, I think... Would that have been possible without technology? No, it wouldn't have. It wouldn't have been possible without technology at all. I mean, I've I've been working out of a bedroom office for the past 17 years and built a, a successful and stable and, and great career from it. And that would not have been possible at all without technology, particularly given my eyesight. So in that in that sense, I don't think technology is is making it harder. I think in 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 that way, it makes it a lot easier. But at the same time, you also have maybe for the adults that are now getting displaced from jobs because they're they're losing jobs to technology and when they don't have there's no programs in place for or very few for sort of re-education and and training and and there's a skills gap mm -hmm. yes absolutely and it's not gonna get closed and not right. not in any meaningful way right it's just gonna it's just gonna wait a couple of generations yeah i mean it would be nice to imagine that people could all just learn how to code or like become a you know famous youtuber teaches knitting classes it's just not mm -hmm. it's it's not gonna happen you know, yeah. it's like, I, I wish, maybe it, I, I would, I'm optimistic or I wish it would, but I don't think it will. So there will almost certainly be a lot of people who are, who feel like they've been left behind because they were. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and it's going to take a solid generation, like you said, maybe two before the, the sort of shift from the post-industrial revolution into something uh, newer and stable that's reflected in, say, the public, public education system. Mm-hmm. Or, or the public education system is replaced by something useful for this. I shouldn't say it like that, but I mean, you know what I mean? Like, <laughs> like public education that I went through was, was very clearly for creating soldiers and factory workers. Right. And prisoners. Like that was the, that was the world you were exposed to. And that was the structure you were exposed to. That was the, the type of superiors you were exposed to, with some exceptions, but mm -hmm. mostly it was a sort of authoritarian, uh, you know, do, as we say, when we say it, this is going to be on the test, memorize it, follow the rules, uh, so on and so forth. Like it, I had a, I was predisposed to creative stuff. So I took as much creative stuff as I could. And I went to a really good school and mm -hmm. still there was practically no creativity in schools. I had to get sent, I had to get bussed out to a special class to take, uh, it was called creativity. And like, <laughs> like if you pass this test, you could go to creativity. Like it was like once a week for the afternoon and they picked up like six kids from my class and we went over just to others, the junior high and, uh, did that. But there was nothing like that in school. It was like strictly like the whole thing was set up to just get a good score in your SATs. And if it wasn't going to be on the SATs, it didn't really matter that much. Yeah. It's, and it's, I think public education is at a really weird spot right now because we still talk about things like, oh, problems with the common core curriculum and teachers teaching to the test and, and that sort of stuff. Mm. And and there's a lot of that. But at the same time, at least at the high school level, personally, I'm starting to see other stuff that's more 
it's more centered around creative thinking and problem solving and like you know there's there's music there's art there's robotics there's programming there's mm. there, it's starting starting to kind of kind of bridge that gap in the in the it's encouraging to hear that because i think i think that the world that people are going to be entering into when they come out of high school and college is already very different and it's going to keep getting differenter so to to hear that high school is sort of broadening their horizons to the extent that they can like i believe that teachers want to do this but yeah a lot of this is coming down from the federal government and they don't have a whole lot of choice in the matter so yeah. so it's it's encouraging to imagine that you know whether it's trades or professional stuff that's more like the the arts or professional services type things like that's great like practical a practical education for the world they're gonna end up in instead of the mm -hmm. world that's been gone for 10 or 15 years or maybe more you know it's like it's like that's to me that's when the skills gap is going to close and i think that technology is i can point to plenty of examples where technology is really helping with this like khan academy or just online education in general youtube yeah. straight up youtube yeah it was just youtube yeah is super educational if you want to use it in that way right and to me that's the polar opposite of sort of um huxley's you know in ford we trust the whole world is going to turn into an assembly line concept some stuff feels like it's sort of coming true and 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 very related to technology in that people can sort of fool themselves into thinking that this a shallow existence is meaningful that's right that's yeah man, that's a slippery slope but anyway um you know like i, I did something I, i'm interacting with people see and it's like that's pathetic if that's your entire <laughs> right your your entire interaction yeah so yeah some of the social stuff you can you can kind of see but at the same time i'm i'm with you i don't think this technology is going to turn us into this big homogenous society of factory produced humans i think it's it's i think it's a lot more liberating than that it's going to allow yeah. us to explore and grow as people and have access to education and information that we never had access to before and to be able to explore those interests and, and create and make things. Yes. And, and I mean, it goes, I think it's fair to say that and potentially connect with people that mm -hmm. can become friends through other means who share your interests instead of just the accident of proximity that, oh, we grew up in the same town. So therefore we're friends. It can be like, oh, we're super into Magic the Gathering, even though you live in London and I live in France. Right you know, we can still connect and we can, we can totally groove on that. And maybe we meet up, maybe we have deeper conversations one-on-one, -on -one, whether it's online or in person. And you can form bonds like that. I remember the first person I, I remember the, the first person I know, shout out to Dana, uh, <laughs> who married somebody that she met on an online dating site, which was, was a long time ago. So it was like, whoa, that's crazy. Yeah. yeah like, well, Richard and I met online in 96. So. Oh, wow. There you go. So, um, is there anything inherently wrong with that? No, it did seem really weird at the time though. Right. Yeah. But I think that it's, um, I think that's an example of, of technology doing sort of enabling what it was already a very natural human behavior. Mm -hmm. I mean, like, how is it natural that you meet your spouse in a bar? That's weird. Like at yeah, a nightclub. I, I don't do either of those things. I have no desire to do either of those things. Yeah. No, me neither. But that's the, but I think that would, that was sort of the, um, the, the, the mating ritual, let's call it, or the courtship ritual in, in like the eighties where I was mm -hmm. in the world was certainly not some sort of natural order of things. You know what I mean? Like the yeah. mechanics of it, you know, whether it was going to a dance or, or I don't know, 
hanging out in a supermarket on a Friday night, like <laughs> like taking it doing a two hour grocery shop and seeing who else was yeah. around. It yeah. was like that. I don't think there's anything inherently uh, better. When when I was in high school, the the big thing to do here was Friday night. You go downtown and you you, you go on Main Street and you drive. From from the BP down to the Super America, Super America, and you turn around and you drive back, and yeah, you just slowly make loops all night. And yeah. people were gathered in parking lots, and yeah, you just, you would just cruise Main Street, and that was the social interaction at the time. Yeah, yep. I've been in town. That's I mm-hmm. I've, I've witnessed that full well. Miami and small towns in upstate New York, and you know house parties and stuff, and like okay, it's all in person. It's all like in real life. But it's also super awkward. It's really uncomfortable. It's, and it's super limited. Yeah, it's super limited. The idea of sort of changing the mechanics of how you get to know somebody and build a trusting relationship. I think technology has actually helped with that. It's probably yeah, done so both. Too. I think the I Tinder think so thing is a little, I mean, for me, it's a little much. And I've talked to people who are the age to be actually using it. And, you know, I would say maybe not age is the right, but, you know, they're, they're single anyway. And they're typically younger and they're like, you know, it's, uh, it sounds like a bonanza of, you know, hedonistic pleasure, but really it's (laughs) pretty like after the, the booty call or whatever, I'm not saying everybody uses it for that, but come on. And, uh, it's pretty empty and it leads to like this for people I've talked to who use it. It's just like, yeah, I mean, it maybe I can see why it sounds good on the surface, but really it's pretty empty and unsatisfying. Yeah. I'm like, okay, I get that. you're you're expressing your interest in a person by which direction you swipe on the screen. Yeah, and you're, <laughs> you know, and if you the intentions are to hook up and you hook up, okay, great, that was that felt good for five minutes or whatever, and and then you're still like, left, I think most people are left wanting more at the end of the day. So mm-hmm. maybe that's a maturity thing, maybe it's not, but I don't know. I don't really. I, I don't. I think technology is pretty neutral in this. In this, you know, this sort of. I don't feel like it's isolating us really. It might be creating. Yeah. You know, it, I suppose it depends on how you use it. It's certainly not creating a bunch of homogenous individuals. That's for sure. I mean, I've never in my life been exposed to a wider variety of types of people on a regular basis than through the internet. Yeah, that's true. So, what's the verdict? Do you think we're headed for Brave New World, a VR version, perhaps? I, I don't think so. Me neither. You you can see hints of some of the social stuff, but again, I think it's like you said, it's it's what you make of it. And I think above all, humans want to form connections with other humans, mm-hmm. and some of those may be shallow, and that's fine. Sometimes all we want is shallow connections, but that doesn't mean we're not going to also want and and search for and create those deeper connections too. Yeah, yeah, I I, I agree. I don't I don't think technology necessarily has to do any of this or, or is going to cause any of it. Maybe we should wrap up. But the the thing that struck me about the book as the glaring hole was that there was no real description of how the government operated. And perhaps I just lack imagination, but I cannot picture a scenario where we could get to that point, to that point. Like they never talk about, you know, they talk about the world controller and stuff like that, but they never talk about like how the next one gets elected or, or like, or, or even what the succession plan is or how a new one is chosen and it's like right well, do they grow a replacement or yeah like how do you get there from where they are i mean honestly i was like he didn't I, honestly i was like i don't understand the point of having all the people alive anyway like what's the point like if if you get to you know if like oh if um if stability is the goal then why don't you just get rid of most of the people like why keep yeah. growing them yeah like a, a drastic reduction in population would give you the stability you want like why is there anything other than alphas well i mean they talked about that because yeah. they 
they said there's they have to have the other cast because alphas aren't happy doing like flipping burgers. Right, but yes, but, yes, and and they did a test and they put all a bunch of alphas on an island and there was a civil war within six years and ninety percent of them were killed and then they were like, please, can we come back? Mm-hmm. And I can imagine that happening. Yeah. And they explained sort of, the not in great detail, but they kind of mapped out how that happened and it did make sense. So, you know, yeah, back in civilization, they had slaves to do stuff, but why not just start growing fewer of everyone? Yeah. You know, it didn't really, it, they didn't yeah. really. Like every year we're going to cut back by 10%. Yeah. It was like, like, what's the point for keeping the, it was never explained why, because it wasn't like people were getting rich or something and it wasn't mm-hmm. like. I mean, I guess you could say the people at the top felt a bigger sense of power the larger the population was, but it was never discussed. Yeah, just just conditioned them to not care. Well, so the people at the top were conditioned the least. So it was yes, like... Yes, they were. It was like... Um, they were conditioned the least and they were cloned the least. Yes, and they said why. Like, there's a scientific reason why, which is that sometimes surprises happen and there are emergencies that need to be actually figured out. And so they mm-hmm. had to have some people who could were capable of improvisation, essentially. Yeah. And, but they never, so, so the point being is that I don't, I mean, I guess it would start with a complete political shift to pure socialism first and then yeah something, but it just seems so impossibly far off. Yeah. And and we're never, we're never going to have a political shift to pure socialism. I think people are too greedy for that. Yes. Greed is good. It keeps us away from being social. I I actually don't care. Like I don't have a strong political opinion about it one way or the other, to be, to be honest. I I, I, I don't, I don't either personally, but I don't, I don't see it happening. Yeah. I don't see it happening. It's like, and, and, and I'll tell you this, I don't think technology would have a thing to do with it. No, I don't think so either. So, so take that, Aldous. <laughs> <laughs> I think the industrial revolution has sort of played itself out, and it's going to be robots doing all that stuff anyway. So, um, you know, it's uh, it's just gone in a different direction than than could possibly have been predicted back then. Right. Yeah. Somewhere. Yeah. I, it, there's there's no way there's no way the technology we have today could have been predicted in 1938. So you could barely have predicted it in the 60s. It's like. Mm-hmm. So anyway, um, yeah, so I think I think it's probably pretty safe to say, pretty safe statement, but we'll probably end up somewhere in between utopia and dystopia. <laughs> yeah, we'll just have a normal-topia. Yes, normtopia. Yeah. Norm. Landtopia. <laughs> Norm. <laughs> All right, cool. Should we should probably, that's probably been enough. Yeah, probably so. Pummeled them into submission. <laughs> Uh, all right. Well, hopefully, dear listener, if you had never read Brave New World before, you feel like you have now. You yeah, read, it was you... it was good. I, I don't I don't regret reading it. I'm I'm glad I read it. So mm-hmm. yeah, same here. So if if uh, you haven't read it before, we just saved you probably eight hours. <laughs> <laughs> so this is a little bit of a long episode, but we saved you saving seven hours. Saving today. seven hours. There you go. Yeah, mm. optimizing. All right, that's our show for this week. I'm Jonathan Stark. And I'm Kelly Shaver. And we hope you join us again next week for Terrifying Robot Dog. Bye. Bye. Would you like to see Kelly and I in your inbox once a week? Get new episodes delivered straight to you with show notes, links to additional content, and announcements about Third Order, Kelly's upcoming show. You can reply to any message to suggest topics for either. To get the inside track, go to terrifyingrobotdog.com and look for the Keep Me in the Loop button. That website again is terrifyingrobotdog.com. 